Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, what's going on today? Not so much, Steve Rooney. I am here. I got a little bit of a head cold, but uh, nothing too, nothing too major. Nothing that's going to stop me from recording this episode of the pod with you. All right, that's you know. I'm sorry about the HUD cold, but we're we're pushing through. We're going on, so everything is good here. You know, just running around. That's it. But today, we've got something a nice message a nice discussion but before we get to that that's my dog trying to break out of the room because he's like brad brad i'm sick of podcasts that have all of these advertisers and sponsorships from athletic greens to hot cold tanks to magic spoon cereal to a super mattress and he says woof 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 this stuff is annoying and uh, that's why we've decided to keep this podcast 100% member-supported and ad-free. So if you're enjoying the Growth Equation podcast, consider supporting us on Patreon. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee for, per month, you get access to our monthly book clubs, mastermind groups, a community Slack channel, signed copies of our new books, early podcast release, and other bonus materials. Head over to www patreon.com backslash the growth equation. It's all one word to learn more, or you can click on the link in the show notes. We appreciate your support. It keeps us completely independent, which is how we like to roll. All right. So today we're going to jump into the medium is the message. But before we get to that, last week we talked about the media landscape we lived in, how it changes all of us, the pitfalls of audience capture. So if you haven't, go back, listen to that one. But today we're going to continue that conversation in a slightly different direction in part two. So maybe, Brad, can you set the stage by what we mean when we quote and say the medium is the message? So The Medium is the Message comes from a book that was written in the 1960s by the Canadian media theorist Marshall McLuhan and was later popularized in the 1980s by the American media theorist Neil Postman uh, in his really just incredible book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in short... We like to think that technology is neutral, particularly platform technologies. So a newspaper is neutral. The words that we put in it are what give it meaning. A television screen is neutral. What we say or watch on TV is what gives it meaning. A social media platform is neutral. It's up to us to type things on it and discuss. So The old school view before McLuhan came along was that mediums are neutral. They have no meaning. And what McLuhan said is actually this isn't true. If anything, the medium is the message. So if you're reading an intellectual journal that goes in through experimental methods and cites all sorts of peer-reviewed research and walks you through a study, that is very rich as a medium, 
and the message will be deep intellectual thinking. If you go on Twitter, well, the medium is 280 characters. And therefore, the message is actually, let's just be as pithy as we can and don't worry about much of the substance. If you watch cable news or even local news, which is really where McLuhan and Postman got their riff going, the medium is, this is all about entertainment, don't take anything too seriously. Because as Postman famously wrote in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, there's only one place in the world where you can hear about a horrific, tragic accident where a parent lost their two kids and partner. And then after that 60-second spot, you go to the meteorologist who's dressed up as a clown because it's the fifth straight day of sun. And what that trains us to do is to be able to move from something really serious to something really dumb. And these guys were really focused on politics. And what they predicted, again, as early as 1964, is that politics should be serious. It should not be entertainment. And the more that politics was working its way onto TV, the more that politics became entertainment. And McLuhan uses some fantastic examples of American presidents who ran long before the television that could never be presidents today simply because how they looked. So imagine Abe Lincoln. Arguably, the one thing all Americans can agree on is that Abraham Lincoln, probably the best president, certainly top five. He was tall. He was gangly. He was kind of awkward looking. He suffered from depression. He wasn't a great public speaker. There is no chance Abraham Lincoln could be president today. He'd be precluded because the mediums that we learn about politics, they're all about quick hits, snaz, charisma. So the whole point of this is that we should be much more aware of the mediums that we're consuming information from because that shapes the information that we consume and how we think about it. And the article that we'll include in the show notes that has us thinking about this again, again, was by Ezra Klein, who Steve and I are both big fans of. And he talks about how he grew up on the internet. For those of you that don't know, Ezra Klein is now um, a perennial top 10 podcast in the world, The Ezra Klein Show. He writes for The New York Times. He co-founded and ran Vox Media. He is an internet dude. And he is writing that he never wanted to believe this is true. He thought that the internet could be a place for great discourse, for sharing, and for really enriching conversation. And now... In 2022, he's coming to the conclusion that nothing is all bad or all good, but he's really starting to question if the internet, and in particularly social media, is a place where so much of the serious business of the world should be happening. And what's fascinating, and then I'll I'll stop with the framing, is that just this morning, a week after this article, on my own little Twitter feed, I saw a really interesting dialogue. I'm not going to name names because I don't have permission, but between a few very rigorous scientists that I really respect. So these are PhDs over 30 years practicing science at phenomenal institutions. And they were talking about how no one reads studies anymore. People just want to see the poster or the abstract or the tweet thread. And that's kind of terrifying. So I really think this isn't, you know, Ezra Klein is a political scientist. He talks about it from a political lens. But if you've got lifelong scientists saying no one reads papers anymore, they just read the abstract or the tweet thread, everything's kind of becoming a McKinsey slide deck, which sometimes is good. 
And yeah, it's a lot swifter just to get to the give me the three bullets and the so what. But if the assumptions aren't clear, then there's a whole lot of bullshit that can transpire beneath the so what. And um, I think you combine that with the entertainment value of everything and you get into trouble. And I'll say one last thing, because I think this is so important for people that are new to this, which my guess is at least some of our audience. McLuhan and Postman, they both loved TV. They had no problem with television. If they were alive today, they'd probably be like, Twitter is great entertainment. TV is great entertainment, but it should not be a place where serious discussions happen because it is impossible to have serious discussions in that medium. So piggybacking off of that, I'm going to give the listeners maybe an example that might make this a little clear. If you're like Brad and I, and you grew up in the 90s, you might remember the big freak out uh, with our parents on video games, right? I still remember, you know, on one video game system, Mortal Kombat came out and it had like these little pixelated blood, right? And on another video game system, there was no pixelated red dots in there. And it was a big deal. And people were freaking out about, you know, games like Mortal Kombat or shooting games or whatever have you as if the world was going to end. And that everyone was going to grow up with like, you know, no morals, all that good stuff. At the same time in the 90s was the rise of cable news, which there was not a lot of backlash. It's like, oh, more cable news options, etc., blah, blah, blah. And what you've seen is our parents of Brad and I's generations were so worried about the thing that we clearly knew was entertainment. Because when you engage in video games, you are actively like saying, I'm going to entertain myself. You're not playing them for a, you know, you know, to be informed on something, whatever. The the intent is very clear. With cable news, that intent, as Brad eloquently outlined, was not clear. It wasn't clear if this is entertainment. It has news in the 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 name etc category so is it entertainment is it information is it you know accurate whatever have you so that intent isn't clear and what we now know you know decades later is that you know video games if you look at the research like it might shift uh expectations or sensitivity towards violence slightly but it isn't turning people into criminals it isn't a huge difference or or a big deal on the flip side, you know, cable news, there's all sorts of research that shows the more cable news or even local news, you watch the more kind of hypersensitive and reactive. And you think the world is a threatening, violent place. And and that influences actual behaviors. So it can be a very negative thing. So I think that's just like this wonderful example, maybe not wonderful, but of this distillation between what we know is entertainment and come to it as versus this mixed idea, which I think is what uh, Postman and McLuhan were getting at, right? If you sit down and you watch Seinfeld or Friends or Parks and Rec or whatever, you know, The Office, you understand what it is and there's no confusion there. The problem is this mixed confusion world that that combines both, um, which creates havoc. So Ezra Klein writes uh, about the internet, 
that it had been my escape from the schoolyard as an awkward kid, but now it felt as if it had turned the world into a schoolyard. Watching Donald Trump tweet his way to the presidency felt like some sinister apothesis, as though we'd rubbed the monkey's paw and gotten our horrible wish. We didn't want to be bored, and now we would never be. And then he goes on to quote Nicholas Carr, who talks about how, and Nicholas Carr, a very serious thinker, says that the way my brain worked as a result of spending time on the internet seemed to be changing. It was then that I began worrying about my inability to pay attention to one thing for more than a couple of minutes. At first, I'd figured that the problem was a simple of my middle age mind rot. But my brain, I realized, wasn't just drifting. It was hungry. It was demanding to be fed the way the net fed it. And the more it was fed, the hungrier it became. Even when I was away from my computer, I yearned to check email, click links, and do some Googling. I wanted to be connected. And reading this makes me think of the recent news of a few days ago when it became clear that there was a search warrant for documents at one of Donald Trump's residencies in Mar-a-Lago that pertained information to top secret, potentially nuclear information. And my phone blew up. And it was exciting. I'm pausing because I got sucked into it. I'm like, oh, it's been a minute. Like now we can talk about something happening on Twitter. But that is a freaking entertainment view to take to the world. And I think that is exactly what Ezra Klein and Nicholas Carr are pointing towards. If everybody wants to be hungry and entertained and they spend a lot of time on the internet, then the best politicians are AOC and Donald Trump because they're entertaining as can be on the internet. But should that be the key skill set of a politician is to be good on Twitter? I don't think so. Should this key skill set of a scientist be their ability to do a really good poster or thread? No, it should be to write a great paper. But if if our brains are conditioned by the internet, no one's going to have the patience to read a great paper. So my fear with all of this is that we're being moved more and more towards the superficial and less and less towards the deep, if not losing our ability to do the deep. Uh, I think we've brought this up on the, the, the pod before, maybe even last week, I don't remember, but I talk about with my clients, internet brain, which is like when you can't focus on anything, you're constantly wanting to check, you're struggling to pay attention to read a book. And it's all traced back to like, oh, I spent tons of time on the internet in the last few days. So the internet does this to our brain. And if politics is unfolding over the internet, then imagine what the internet is doing to politicians' brains. Um, it's tough, man. I, 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 this is definitely something where I wish there was like a solution. Again, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. In many ways, y'all are listening to this podcast because of the internet. And maybe therein does lie the solution. Certainly how I think about it is that always try to go a level deeper. So Twitter or Instagram or what have you is the first level or seeing a news headline. The second level is then reading an article. The third level is then listening to the person on a podcast where they have a long form conversation. The fourth level is then picking up the person's book. The fifth level is then picking up the person's book and picking up the book of someone that disagrees with the person. 
and that is when you can start to say, I'm being intellectually honest and rigorous about my understanding of a topic. The problem is, once you get past level one and two, you start craving level one and two again, which makes it hard to do level three, four, and five. Yeah, there's a couple things that come to mind. Is first, um, it's almost like the internet is a cheat cheat to feeling certain, right? It allows us not only to get kind of rewarded for those like quick hit news items or whatever that seems like entertainment, but it also allows us to kind of surround ourselves and uh, feel good about our ideas and validate them, even if they're we're staying on level one or level two. And you see this all the time. So again, not to go too far into our own social media worlds, but like I'm sure you've seen this as well, Brad, that the larger social media following I get, the more I get random people replying to things that I tweet. And often it's interesting because I'll I'll tweet out something maybe within my wheelhouse of expertise. And then you get flooded if the tweet goes viral, flooded with people who it's clear they have no idea like what they're talking about or understanding of maybe some basic, you know, in my world, like exercise physiology concept. But they're very passionate and very certain about it. And coming back, bringing this out broader is I like to think of, you know, the medium as the message as, you know, viewing it through the lens of ecological psychology, which we talked about in peak performance, which is then our environment invites action. And what actions are the internet, social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, what are those inviting? Well, they're often inviting the kind of shallow thinking or shallow processing or quick hit, you know, ideas um, that, you know, don't have much depth behind it. And I'll give you one more example. So. Brad briefly decided to sign up for TikTok to promote books and then gave up with it, you know, gave up on it in about a week. But before he gave up on it, I was like, oh, Brad's getting on TikTok. That means I should probably like use TikTok to promote my work as well. So whatever. I signed up for TikTok. So what do I do? I'm saying I have no idea what this crazy app is all about. It's just like stimulus after stimulus after stimulus. It's crazy. So I do what I, I, I know to do. I text one of my former um, college athletes who's still, gosh, probably 20, 21, you know? So I'm like, TikTok, this app is nuts. I can't understand it. Tell me what to do. And he sent back a nice, you know, intelligent paragraph. And then at the end, he said something, and I'm paraphrasing. Um, he said, essentially, Think of the person with the shortest attention span in the world. And that is who you're trying to capture. It's like you've got to capture them within the first like three to five seconds. And then make sure you're changing every every couple seconds to keep that person captured. And I have no, no doubt his advice was spot on. But it concerns me a little bit that his advice is spot on because we're going even further to, well, what, you know, what sort of actions is me being on TikTok if I'm saying, okay, got it, I have to produce content in this area in this way 
uh, you know, get views, likes, etc. That medium is inviting actions that are like, how do I condense and crunch and keep you entertained and like dance around or whatever it is, um, even shorter and shorter, which is concerning. <laughs> Particularly because the way to make actual change in the world is often slow and arduous and boring and a result of just showing up and putting up with bullshit for a very long time, particularly if you're trying to change an institution for the better. Yes, exactly. And I think the other thing that is really important is that the world is mixed and complex and messy and nuanced, but all of these environments invite shedding all of that to get to the one or two like very entertaining, like concrete, make us feel certain uh, variable, which again, when we shed all that nuance, we lose the true understanding and meaning. And then we, we just essentially the way I like to look, think of it is we end up with ideas with a bunch of soundbite ideas that sound good, you know, Unless you think about them for 30 seconds. But the problem is we we don't encourage and our mediums don't invite thinking about things for longer than, you know, a couple seconds. Yeah. And it's and it's really tricky. You know, I mean, obviously, it's a little bit different from us um, than for for people with more traditional jobs. But I mean, the only reason that I maintain social media platforms is to try to move people to the books and increasingly this podcast and not because I make tons of money from the books. We make we just barely cover our costs with this podcast. The books royalties that anyone in publishing knows are like you know a penny plus a book. It's because that's where I'm at best because I'm wrestling with topics in long form. I'm bringing in other ideas, and the reader can really wrestle with things in their own minds than if they're just scrolling and then they immediately see the next thing. So it's like a conduit to try to go deeper, but um. Again, like I think that that's why I read that quote from Nicholas Carr. The problem is not only that people don't go deeper because they think that the quick hit that they get on social media or the internet will cover everything, but it's also because the internet literally makes it harder for your brain to go deeper. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's like it's internet brain and internet withdrawal. Absolutely. And you and I know this, like it's very, well, I'll, I'll just talk about my recent book launch, recent book launch. You're on the internet all the time. So internet brain takes over. Well, whenever I try and like sit down and write or maybe do something like very focused during that launch time, it's, it's, it's near impossible. Like it's impossible to do it of quality enough work um, or high enough quality because your brain is so captured on like it's like the squirrel brain or it's like shifting all over the place because you have trained your brain how how do i get rewarded what do i respond to will i respond in this very kind of haphazard you know overstimulated way so it doesn't like going deep or staying focused yeah and Again, like there's a middle ground too between launching a book and spending all your life on the internet and just kind of the more scrolling to kill free time that a lot of people do. 
But I think the latter is more insidious than we give it credit for. Um, Because again, like it's, it's feeding that addiction for novelty and stimulation, which then makes you like entertainment more than anything. And then we wonder why the people with the most influence in the world today are really at their core entertainers. And the president of the free world, Donald Trump, is not a businessman, not a politician. He's an entertainer. That's what he is. That's what he became known for. Um, I've said it. I'm like, oh, The Rock should run for president because at least he'd beat Trump. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, he's a good football player. He's pretty well-spoken, but I don't know if he knows shit about politics. Probably not because he spends his time as an entertainer. And I just, I, I, I think that those that can entertain and market well are going to win in the attention economy, but good marketing and good entertainment doesn't equal good product or good for the world. So you see this in science all the time. The people that crush on like health and fitness and, and quote unquote what we call bro science, they're great entertainers. They're super pithy. They make things sound really complex. They make you sound like you're getting some game-changing inside information. And in the best case, they're just painting really simple stuff and making it sound complex so people listen, which is fine. Hey, if it gets them to do the simple stuff, great. But in the worst case, they're just totally talking out of their ass. Um, it's no surprise we did an episode on this that Alex Jones is selling supplements. It's no surprise that Mehmet Oz is selling supplements. Like the grift is the grift, man. If you can entertain and you can market, unfortunately, in today's world, you can be very successful even if what's underneath that entertainment and market is a pathetic bunch of nothing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's true. It, it it has changed and turned all of us into marketers to a degree. I mean, and it's, it's, you know, it goes beyond that in the sense that often our identity val- validity validation is tied to follows, likes, all that stuff. So now here's the flip side. You know, we were joking offline about your lack of a New York Times subscription, but in the old days, the only way that you'd really write a book that got passed around and discussed and debated was you'd have to have it reviewed in a place like the New York Times or the Atlantic, or if you're more conservative, the Wall Street Journal, National Review, whatever. And if you don't, you know, maybe you sell a few books here and there, but it's a lot harder to be an author today because of things like Twitter, Instagram, Medium, all the things that we're kind of railing on. You can launch a book, have it be a national bestseller and have it get no coverage from the two biggest newspapers in the country. Yeah. I mean, that's it's it's we're railing on stuff, but it also allows us to do our job. So it's it you hey take, man, speak for yourself. I'm in the elitist paper. Uh, well, I'm a coastal elitist. They respect me. I came here from California. That's that's what you get for when you grow up in the South and and live in Texas. So no elitism here. That's what we got. But no, I, I used think- to be a, co- a coastal elitist. But you know what broke it, Steve? What's we came to Asheville, man. And don't tell the health influencers this. I ate Bojangles so frequently for about two months until I was sweating Bojangles. And 
while sweating out the spicy chicken rub from Bojangles, I sweat out my coastal elitism too. I okay. Well, there you go. Watch out, nutrition Twitter. Maybe this is a good place to uh, to summarize things up. But watch out, nutrition Twitter. Brad is promoting Bojangles, and right, this podcast is not brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's brought to you by Bojangles. He's about which, to get us canceled. Which I do recommend you should trade up. The Bojangles binge was appropriate. As I said, I had to leave the coastal elitism behind. Um, I think that if you can find non-fast food fried chicken in in the mid-Atlantic or south, that's the right choice to make. All right. This this is important. This is is vital. So Rocky's Spicy Chicken Shack is my athletic greens. I'm not affiliated with them. I'm not sponsored by them. But if you want some good fried chicken, I highly recommend Rocky's Spicy Chicken Shack. Patton Avenue. Oh, there, there you go. There is the, there's the non-sponsor sponsor of this week's episode. See, and I'm not even good enough. I blew it. I'm pretty sure I had this debate with my wife yesterday. We get food from there all the time. It's Rocky's Hot Chicken Shack. So for those of you that are going to be rolling through Asheville, Rocky's Hot Chicken Shack. If you're going to go above medium, be very careful. <laughs> Got it. All right. This podcast has gone off the rails, but there's some chicken, you know, restaurant advice if you go through Asheville. And um, if you don't, you know, just watch out being online. That's 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 my takeaway here is that it's it's not a maybe the takeaway is it's not an issue of willpower or what have you. It's just a reality of we live in the Internet world now. So just you have to be very thoughtful, intentional, and hopefully aware of how it's kind of changing your your brain and mind and how we all work and put up some safeguards and then, you know, know when you're getting internet brain and go take a walk. Yeah, individually for sure. And then I think more societally, it's one of those things where it's just helpful to ask the question and to be aware of it because there are no easy solutions. Because like, So you could say that, oh, you know, the senators and people in Congress, imagine that we had like a functioning government. They'd say, well, let's just regulate the hell out of it and get rid of it and go back to all thoughtful discourse. Sounds good on its face, but that could also look a lot like backroom conversations of elitist making decisions that are totally out of touch with reality. Well, then you get the polar opposite, which is you get the everyman, you get Joe Rogan, and now suddenly Joe Rogan's going to run for president. That's probably not great either. So I think like transparency and freedom in giving people a platform is good. I think in economics that rewards attention, knowing and preying upon humans like innate addictive response to novelty, to stimulus, to stuff that feels cool and exciting is a really, really crappy combination. Um, And I just keep going back to like Abe Lincoln trying to run for president today could never happen. Right. And how many Abe Lincolns are there out there that could save our country? It's very true. Poor honest Abe. We wouldn't have him now. He would not make it. So there you go. We would have been screwed if 
we have a civil war. So hopefully it doesn't come to that because we're going to miss out on our modern day Abe Lincoln. Anyways, if you enjoyed this podcast, you know, give it a like, a review, a share to someone else. And we just thank you guys for supporting our work, which you can again through the purchase of our books and also um, through joining our Patreon community. So to go deeper on all things growth equation, check out the show notes. Again, we'll have the link to Patreon there. We'll have the link to our two most recent books that are available both on paper, digitally, and audio. And uh, until then, we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.